welcome to Freightonomic, uh, the show slash podcast, depending on how you're uh, encountering us, where we combine the economic environment with the transportation slash supply chain environment and give you the information you need to move about your day. I am head of market intelligence, Zach Strickland, here with chief economist, Anthony Smith. And we have some interesting topics to discuss today around global economic policy and how it's pertaining to domestic economic development. And I, you know, I've read a few things here recently, Anthony, and I, I told you that we were going to talk about, I'm not springing this on you <laughs> in the middle of our show or anything like that, but the, some interesting stuff coming out. There's some criticism as there always is about policies and I'm not trying to get political here. I just want to break down what is some of these things actually mean uh, and get to the crux of it. Yeah. And throughout this show, if you want to join in on the conversation, I'll be looking down from time to time because I will be monitoring, of course, our LinkedIn. So if you are watching on LinkedIn, we appreciate it. Stay tuned in. If you want to jump in on the conversation, leave a comment, a question, anything like that. Shout out. We got you covered. Uh, but first up, Anthony, you know, I like to set the tone with this current freight market environment using some of our data here uh, to really describe the situation because I like that data. That's <laughs> right. So that is our market in two, and I'll be counting down in four, three, two, one, go. All right. Starting things off with our outbound tender volume index. This is our demand side indicator. It counts the number of tenders going from shipper to carrier for loads that move under a current contract rate agreement. Uh, the tender volume index has increased about 3-ish percent off of February volumes. This is a seasonal situation. Now, I only have uh, two or three years on here. I, I removed one of them uh, because I didn't want to confuse the situation. But uh, the current environment is very close to that orange line there, which is the 2019 market very, you know, back to kind of a seasonal pattern. What are we going to see this summer type situation? And I think that's where we're at is demand is currently well below supply. And there's a lot of buffer available uh, in the market in terms of overall capacity availability. The percentage of these rejected of these tenders being rejected right now, 3.22%. It dropped about 28 basis points day over day yesterday, Anthony. So it is Extremely soft environment, demand increase not having a really any substantial impact on uh, on freight right now. So let's move into the next chart here. Another demand side indicator. This is the other one that I'm watching. IOTI. Uh, this is the bookings data imports coming from all over the world into the United States. The white line there, very close, but actually under 2019 levels there in the purple line, if you can see that. Uh, Shippers are not really ordering that much more freight. Now, we came out of a little bit of a trough from the Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year period, uh, but demand is relatively stable. So I guess the good news here is it's not falling <laughs> any, any further at this point. Let's move to the last chart here. NTIF, our forecast based on a lot of upstream variables that have been predictive, but we're disconnected over Christmas. As you can see, the NTIF 28 uh, in green, historical prediction coming back into alignment here and showing a very strong downward move in April. Zach, one thing stands out to me, and it's just around the entire lack of demand signals that we see. So yeah. looking at the IoT, that's, a, that's one that I love, of course, looking at, especially with other indices like um, um, the ISM PMI. And it really gives you that upstream look because this is an indicator of future surface transportation um, volume. And so we're looking at that. It gets 
I won't say concerning, but it definitely starts to paint this picture of like that second half expectation of volumes that a lot of people were talking about earlier on in the year is not really quite coming to fruition just yet. I think that's the biggest concern is, you know, everybody was expecting inventories to be the story this year. Inventory corrections. We're going to now start to see seasonal freight volumes uh, come back into the norm. But that ignored the, this idea that what if people are buying less? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what if the consumer isn't as resilient as we think they are? Now, so far, I mean, if you look at those demand side indicators, they're actually doing just fine. They're, they're actually just buying things and we're moving freight at the pre-pandemic standard which I, I think is okay uh, if you're, from our perspective, right. like does the consumer retain some of this resiliency? Is it as hot as it was during the pandemic? You know, is it? No, it's not. And I don't think that was going to be sustainable anyway. So right now we're in a very transitionary, transitionary state where we've gotten used to an unsustainable level of activity and it feels a lot softer. You know, it's like walking outside in the spring 65 degrees feels hot or, you know, whereas it's the end of the summer, it feels cold. Right. You know? Yeah. And I think, um, other big thing, of course, one of the things you mentioned earlier on and the, throughout the pandemic is that folks, we start to get more efficient with it as well. Um, improved services, improved freight tech, improved different processes overall. So that was a big aspect. But then, I mean, we're looking at the state of the consumer, as you mentioned, they are, you know, kind of purchasing at kind of levels that they were pre-pandemic. And so that's, I wouldn't even be upset if I saw them tamp down on some of the burden activity just to put them in a better position financially as we get throughout, you know, the remainder of the year. Because if we're looking at, of course, the the basis of the overall U.S. economy, it's going to come down to the consumer. Right now, of course, they're riding that wave of the labor market, um, 10.8 million job openings is the latest figure, but uh, that's a lagging indicator. And uh, it's, it's not a and we did see that initial jobs claims is still under 200,000. So that's a good sign. Don't want to see that spiking up, but definitely knowing that this can shift quickly and suddenly. Yeah, I think the jobs market has been the thing that everybody's leaning on, including the Fed. Uh, and I want to talk about the Fed here in a minute. But first off, uh, let's talk about some of these stories, the newsonomics. Uh, some of these topical stories, I don't want to spend a ton of time on these today, but I think they're very worthy of mention here. The first one I have for you, Anthony is uh, Teamsters tell Yellow no more purchase transportation. So purchase transportation, for those of you who don't know, is basically for an LTL provider such as Yellow, they outsource, they ask truckload carriers to move their freight for them. It's not a Yellow truck. This is why the Teamsters and the unions don't like that because it's like, well, why don't you hire somebody in the union to run this for you? Well, Anybody that knows freight market dynamics knows that the market is extraordinarily unbalanced. (laughs) So, whereas there may be a lot of demand for moving freight from Los Angeles to Phoenix, there's not a lot of return trips available for (laughs) coming from Phoenix to Los Angeles. Not a lot of production out of Phoenix. Not a lot of warehousing for uh, long-haul transit out of Phoenix. So, this is why LTL providers who consolidate freight at their P&D locations and move it long distances. Uh, it's very unbalanced in their networks. So they, if they if they want to do Los Angeles to Phoenix, they know that that driver is going to have to make enough money to drive back right. empty, right. more than likely, or very little on it. So at a certain point, it becomes more economically viable to, you know, put that one, pay for one direction 
which is going to be what 60 to 75 percent of the round trip <laughs> which makes more money <laughs> uh and so for the teamsters to come out and say they don't want any purchase transportation that's not an economically viable model um, yeah. And, and we were talking about an industry where, of course, every industry margins are everything, but especially within transportation. And of course, maybe LTL is going to be a little bit, um, you know, better on the margins than what we would see from truckload. But overall, it's still a, a thin margins game overall. And when we see um, rates at where they are right now, this isn't the same environment that we saw, you know, in the midst of the pandemic where you could just kind of just send anything anywhere and you'll just be A-OK no matter what. And you're just falling into money. This is in that same environment. And so these practices are going to be a little bit more sticky. You know, the, I, I hate the term. It's not personal. It's business. <laughs> I hate the cliche that it, it's for, I mean, if you don't want people to be personally involved in what they do, you're asking them to not give all that they have to your business. Therefore, you should not ask the same. <laughs> um, and, and this is one of those situations where you, you have this struggle between the individual and the larger entity. <laughs> and the unions are supposed to be looking out for the individuals in this situation, and 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 rightfully so. Um, and this is only necessary if you have an extremely unbalanced relationship between the individual and the larger entity. Yellow in this situation. I don't like these. <laughs> I don't like these environments because you get these stupid outcomes. <laughs> and no purchase transportation obviously damages the larger entity, which invariably hurts the individual in the long run. And there has to be a coming together in a middle ground and asking for a polarizing hyperbolic thing, which they know they're not, it's not a thing that you're going to get, isn't productive. It's a waste of time and energy, a lot of politicking going on here. And I just, you know, yellow struggled <laughs> quite a bit. So I have to ask, what is the end goal here for the union? I mean, obviously big companies can get out of balance as well. I mean, that they, they, we see this in the NFL currently with Lamar Jackson. You've got an individual who sees these big entities paying a lot of money, and he's like, well, I want some of that too. Mm -hmm. However, you look at an individual like Pat Mahomes taking less money, winning Super Bowls because that makes for the larger entity. But then you have the situation where it's like, then you got these owners yeah. <laughs> who are making a lot of money. So you always have this struggle of how much value do you how much does the individual need to be compensated in relation to the bigger picture right and that's a hard question to answer and that's what's happening right here uh with yellow and uh and the unions yeah and i think i mean we're, i think you hit the nail right on the head because if they say there was an instance of a world where the unions just got everything they want all the demands were met this would be the downfall for Meaning, there'll be no more yellow. There'll be no more yellow. Yeah. And then next thing you know, like you said, the individuals, maybe they had a very short-term economic bump, but long-term, they're going to be in a bad situation. Then you'll see, of course, the market get a little bit less competitive, even though it's very fragmented. So it's not going to be a huge, huge shakeup. But yeah. then it just it's just not going to be feasible overall. And so like you, you said- You have to have trust is expensive. Yeah. Um, and it's if you say it's not personal as business, you don't have trust. <laughs> you can't have trust in that environment. And that's something that I think a lot of businesses need to uh, really evaluate because if you trust your employees, you don't have these types of situations. Right. If you trust your company, you don't have these types of situations. It works both ways. I'm not arguing for the union against the union in this situation. I'm saying 
these two entities need to figure out what's a good balance uh, because yellow has been a mess for a while in terms of financial outcome. Yeah, and, and our, our article also outlines that uh, purchase transportation expense accounted for 14.3% of y- yellow's revenue last year. So a pretty decent chunk there. And that's, and that's industry standard. It's not a lot. So I don't think this is out of hand anyway. Uh, Moving forward, speaking of trust issues, uh, federal law designed to make trucking safer may have aggravated worst issues. ELDs. Rachel Premack just covers this so exquisitely in this article. I highly recommend anybody that's not familiar with trucking operations and why carriers struggle with operating, uh, you know, making money in general uh, at times. This article actually does a pretty good job of why it's such a struggle, even if you say, hey, I'm going to haul this freight for this amount of money, that's not a guaranteed outcome in terms of making money. You run into traffic, you run into detention issues where you're stuck picking up or delivering loads. And when you have these regulations that are so focused on one thing, and the one thing ELDs are trying to solve is not driving tired. Well, just because you limit somebody to a 11-hour clock or a 14-hour clock for a day, that doesn't inherently solve the problem of being tired. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where it's definitely a rule that was, I think, a mandate put in place by someone that's never probably been a truck driver or in a, a, a truck before or operate on that day-to-day uh, basis. Because you think about what it does, like you said, it starts and it stops the clock mm-hmm. and segments it off once you start it doesn't end just kind of finish it all out through but the big thing is it's like it doesn't monitor sleeping like you don't know if i got a full eight what if i slept for two hours what and that's because they didn't drive for 11 at the 11 hour doesn't mean that they're sleeping exactly <laughs> so like it, 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 it's an attempt to i think to solve a situation and it's like a, a huge band-aid that was put on something that maybe needed very intricate stitches and different types of antibiotics and other things applied. And so I, I think we're seeing a lot here from this article and the study that's put out. Yeah. And because we're data driven here uh, with the way that we display things, we have a chart on truck accidents here that actually shows that truck accidents since ELDs were implemented in 2018, um, they're gone up. <laughs> now, you could apply some of that to a little bit of pandemic activity, but 2019 had more truck accidents in it than any of the other years. Fatal crashes per, uh, I forget, 10,000 miles or something like that. 100 million miles traveled. Um, and that's, you know, this it's gone the other direction. So the data says that what just happened did not work. <laughs> uh, now, there could be other factors going on here, more traffic, more driving, et cetera, that, you know, maybe a cause. But the bottom line is that there's evidence that the ELD mandate does not actually improve safety. And that needs to be evaluated because when we're talking about what ELDs actually do, they're capacity limiters. Uh, this, is a, this is a way to keep, you know, the, the amount of capacity available off the road. And it's not that safety shouldn't be a priority. It absolutely has to be a priority. Uh, but just looking at it from the, the aspect of, hours per day driving is insufficient. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, there, of course, I think this was probably maybe done, like I said, um, to limit capacity, put out as, you know, the, the thing to create a safer environment. So good intentions, I'm sure as well, from the surface level, but really it, 
it's one of those things where there's so many unintended consequences yeah. when you put something in place. And this happens all the time, especially at, on the government's aspect. Uh, we can talk about the Fed a little bit later on, but there's so many unintended consequences when you put something like this in place. Unintended consequences. Speaking of, you just talked about the Fed, uh, and I want to move into this now because we, you know, the Fed obviously raising rates. We talk about this every week now because we can't, we almost have to, <laughs> being an economic centric show. Uh, and, and unintended consequences of very simplistic actions. So similar to the ELD, you know, the government policy tends to derive its direction from a singular standpoint of solving a cert one problem itself. Right. ELD is trying to solve this driver exhaustion situation and fix, you know, them being unsafe because they're too tired. Right. It, it, it's an oversimplification of a very complicated system. And this is something that people do all the time. We try to oversimplify something that has way more complexity than our minds can handle right. all at once. Just give me an easy button. Give me, simplify this for me. Can you boil the ocean? <laughs> you know, there. Uh, the Fed has really derived a lot of its energy from curing inflation as they see it. And this has all sorts of unintended consequences. <laughs> when you're talking about a simple lever, a binary action going up and down, this is arguably uh, a flaw in our political environment too. When you only have two possible outcomes in the way that you look at a problem, it's either you fix it or you don't. <laughs> There's a lot of gray area uh, in between. So I want to pull up the chart here of the Fed funds uh, combined. And Tony Mulvey, of course, let me know that we had this other, the green line there, the delinquency rate. <laughs> now, Anthony, I'm going to pose this to you as an economist, a lifelong economist, yes. uh, your, yourself and me being a kind of a transitory and like analyst. <laughs> I look at this. Now, the white lines, the vertical lines there are recessions. Mm -hmm. The blue line is the Fed funds rate. The green line is the credit card delinquency rate. <laughs> um, so correct me if I'm interpreting anything wrong here. Uh, over the last 20-ish years or so, 25-ish years, the Fed raises interest rates until we hit a recession. Yes. Very little plateauing. They just kind of keep raising the interest rate. Yes. Uh, in the meantime, delinquencies are kind of a byproduct of this. <laughs> Am I reading something wrong here and thinking that this current... <laughs> Obviously, you see at the very end of this Fed rate increase, this probably has a much more violent outcome at the end of it because of the speed uh, with which it raised. If you look back there in the 2000s, you know, it actually did plateau a little bit, but the outcome was really, I mean, we, anybody that was in the workspace 2008, 2009 knows that this was a dramatic yeah. economic recession called the Great Recession, for those of you that don't know. Yeah. Uh, this makes me feel bad. Right. <laughs> it, it, yeah, and I got to chat with Tony a little bit today on on the spot. And one of the things I had to kind of point out first here was that from that point at 2009, you see that blue line is just hovering at that low level. And I, I know when we're looking at the current economic environment, of course, a lot of it is going to be pointed around, um, hey, what happened throughout the pandemic? Money supply increased exponentially, stimulus packages deployed, all these other things happening, go going on, quantitative easing through the roof, all this other stuff that's really the cause of what's happening right now. And that's only part of the problem. The other big part of it was what was happening from 2009 on in that low interest rate environment that really 
the, the U.S. economy became addicted to. And so what we saw throughout that time was like, we got a, a subtle increase, of course, throughout 2019, then that come down of once again uh, throughout the pandemic. But really overall, it was those low interest rate environments that really um, fueled a lot of investment activity that probably shouldn't have happened. A lot of purchases that probably shouldn't have happened. So this was an environment that a lot of businesses and people really got uh, adjusted to and, and addicted to for that time and, and uh, throughout the last few years here. Now, when we're looking at um, what the Fed is doing with increasing interest rates, this is something that we talk about proactive and reactive. And so this is definitely a reactive thing that they're doing here. Now, ideally, in an ideal world, you would want to implement something like this proactively when the economy is in a place to take these interest rate increases. So we always talk about this is that these interest rate increases probably came way too late, should have been happening when we saw a run up in assets like um, meme stocks, <laughs> NFTs, all these right. other things that people were just buying too many of, they could definitely take on a little bit more interest rate increases during that time frame. Because throughout that same time, we also were being told that inflation is going to be transitory throughout that time frame. So there was a, a, a lake to the party uh, effect here. Now we see this rapid increase because we now know inflation wasn't transitory. And I think, of course, the, the Fed, the brilliant people, I don't know if, you know, they, they have PhDs, they have these degrees. You have a PhD, Anthony, doesn't mean you know what's going on. I know, I'm, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. But they, they, I think they understand what's on the other side of this and the potential of the downsides here. And so because of that, all the tools that they have is, of course, um, growing and shrinking the balance sheet, uh, increasing and decreasing interest rates are the tool tools that they can use. And so if they already kind of subtly started some of that quantitative easing with the pseudo bailout that they're not saying is a bailout of, of some of the, the banks that we saw throughout March 13th timeframe, and we're already starting to see, you know, it was expected a, a 50 basis point increase now, a 25 basis point increase. Um, they're really trying to ratchet this up as much as possible to give them a little bit of room to kind of come down on a little bit later on I don't like when that. we need it. I don't like I don't like it either. So I don't like, like, I don't like hey, saying I'm gonna I'm gonna jack things up and make them worse now just so I can be the savior later. Like that's yeah. what I hear. But I also hear in this, and I think you've summed it up greatly, we were too lax with the interest rates uh being low for so long. We, we waited too long. Then the pandemic of course happened. Uh, and we misinterpreted, I think, the pandemic in terms of what was happening during that environment, due to the lack of information more than like very hard environment to understand for sure. Uh, and now I just there's nothing in me that thinks that a rapid rate of increase of interest rates is a good thing to do at any just about any point in time because they are a slow draw. It's like over steering a boat. Yeah. You never really get in alignment with that. And again, a very binary output. It's like we either have no interest rates or too much. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I would love to move away from that. So real quick, uh, I think you summed that up perfectly. Oh, the other big thing is if we do see a uh, a, a shift here in, in economic cycles and we have to flip that switch of lowering interest rates or moving into quantitative easing, the scary thing here is if inflationary pressures aren't already come down at all, those methods are going to be inflationary building. So a lowering in interest rates is going to push up inflation, a quantitative easing going to increase inflation, and then the value of the U.S. dollar coming down also increased the, value, uh, the money for input. See, it's more complicated than simply raising interest rates, <laughs> which was the point. Uh, real quickly here, and I'm gonna we're going to have to punt on this topic maybe till next week. Geopolitically speaking, 
Uh, Adam Posen has come out, the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He's been all over the economic news this week. Former Bank of England policymaker and Federal Reserve economist has basically been criticizing current policy with this zero-sum fallacy. He writes that the U.S. administration's effort to take away production from others in a zero-sum way will ultimately backfire and leave America worse off in the end. So he lists all these bullet points out, Anthony. I want to tackle this at some point in the future. Yes. But quick, hot take. What do you think of what he's saying here? Uh, you know, I, I think he hits a lot of points here, and I think it's, it's pretty spot on. I think when I think of market efficiency and economic efficiency, I think of competitive advantage and comparative advantage. Of course, go back to Econ 201. Who can produce it faster? Who can produce more of it? It's going to make everyone else better off. Yep. Now, of course, I understand protectionism. You want to make sure domestically your industries are in a good place. You want to make sure that your people are working and the industries are, are, are safe. You can really get to things quickly. But really, long term, it's going to be a little bit of a detriment because it's not going to be efficient or effective. Supply chains thrive when they are built upon the resources moving efficiently. Yes. Not politically. <laughs> and that's what we have. And that's what nearshoring actually threatens in the long run is what you're saying. Correct. Yeah. It has to be a balance of, of capital labor. So we can nearshore capital intensive things. And that's what we're good at here in the U.S. But if we try to import more labor, the pricing goes down.